0: Nobody's born incredible. People who do incredible things simply took the right steps. This is our journey. This is the hunt for incredible. Today we're in the studio with a very special guest and good friend of mine, Aubrey Ennis. Aubrey is a commercial real estate operator who acquired $180 million worth of real estate within his first three years from buying multifamilies and hospitals. Now, this is the first of two episodes where we talk about his journey of how he acquired his first multi-million dollar deal, scaled it, and the principles he lives by that enabled him to do it. In the next episode, we'll dive into how he would do it all over again with no money and no connections, so be sure not to miss that one. All right. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Aubrey Ennis. Aubrey, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. All right. So I want to kick things off with some context as to how bonkers what you did actually was. So you acquired $180 million worth of real estate within your first three years of really diving into it. Um, I can empathize with how bonkers that is because Jackie and I, we just bought a fourplex uh, worth about half a million dollars as an investment property that we flipped, and that took us a few months. So actually, comparing that to 180 million dollars within the first three years, is uh, really puts things in a perspective uh, for us especially, uh, which is which is absolutely insane. So, can you chat more about what you, what strategy and approach you leverage to really ramp up that scale?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I, I'd say it was definitely on the relationships more than more than anything and doing you know kind of doing your homework on um when you're going out to find larger deals and go and do multiple deals again and again it's this programmatic relationship that I think we were definitely after and so really kind of where that started was reaching out to you know as many people as I possibly could in my market figuring out what they're doing what they like um what kind of deals that they were interested in doing what would make them interested in meeting with me and then when I wasn't doing that um, I was studying the the physical deal structures and how to put the stuff together so that you know when you finally do land the meeting with the right person that you know you're gonna go do a deal with you don't sound like an idiot and you know blow the whole thing so um, I'd say alongside the study and just reaching out is you know we've talked on it before is I'll take a page out of Cardone's book it's just a massive action it was I mean absolute I don't know if I'd call it a – I would call it a red line. It absolutely was just an absolute red line for, like, three years of, um, you know, sleep deprivation. Some people can argue it's a bad thing, but when you're first getting started out, there's not really a balance, I think, that a lot of people are looking for. It very much wasn't unbalanced. It was – it took me. It took friends, mentors, um, you know, family, people looking at me thinking I was crazy and just pushing through that um, every single day is – hard and as fast as you possibly can. But while it's hard and fast, it's also very um, careful and calculated. You can't, uh, especially when you're gambling with other people's days, time, money, um, you got to be very mindful of those things.
0: Yeah. So there are a ton of super cool things to tease out there. Massive action is super important. I think something else that you do really well, which you kind of touched on already, is the right type of action, right? So how are you applying yourself? I think a lot of people, sometimes they'll do a lot of busy work and they'll feel like they're moving, but they're actually not going anywhere. Maybe they're investing a bunch of time, more time than they need to planning or what have you. And they're just consumed with work without actually moving that needle um, effectively. Can you share the story that you shared with me previously? Because I feel like it, even though it's it's outside of the real estate, it still touches on this really well of, taking action, but putting yourself out there and just being really bold and confident about that car that you had that was broken down and then you ended up going and swapping it out.
1: I think you got to um, really kind of take a look at where you're at in life. I was in college when, you know, I really started going at this. And so the massive action there was while I was majoring and I was finishing my degree and I was looking into, you know, my anesthesia classes and trying to do clinicals at the hospital and things like that when I wasn't doing that, I was reading real estate books. I was reading stock books. I was reading, um, uh, you know, I even went into venture capital books and things like that. I started learning the financial landscape. Um, and it took me to three, four, five o'clock in the morning and, you know, several all nighters, what, what have you, and just, just pushing through and trying to learn. Um, but that kind of goes to picking your strategy. I picked real estate it was something I knew, um, something that, you know, I'd grown up around. I had seen both sides of it, both, you know, what it looked like to work in it. Um, First, uh, you know, I've met several operators throughout my market, but uh, kind of fast-forwarding to um, the car story was I was in – I had finished college, and I was going down to – I'd gotten a CFO position to work for – it was a friend of mine who started a roofing company. And so we were in college and, gosh, even maybe even high school, uh, we went and chased some storms, and I chased storms with these group of guys, and we'd go to Colorado we'd go throughout different uh, – different places uh, throughout the U.S., and it was just a good, you know, go learn how to sell, go be uncomfortable, go try something, just learn learn stuff, and obviously, you know, try and go make some money, and uh, one of those guys had ended up um, starting his own company, and he was out in the middle of absolute nowhere, Texas, in Heiko, Texas, and he was like, hey, I need help running the books, I need I need a CFO, and I was like, well, I'm fresh out of college and anesthesia, but I said, yeah, okay, I've learned enough about you know, financials. Sure, I can go do this. One of those kind of bold, taking a swings, trying something new. But when I was driving back and forth for the first couple of months, uh, I had this little Mazda hatchback, and it was definitely on its last legs. And finally, I was coming down to go meet this guy, and I'd accepted the job, and uh, you know, he's going to pay me X amount of dollars for the next twelve months. And um, car started smoking on the highway. And I was like, I'm not going to be able to drive. I might not make it to where I'm going. So literally pulled off. Went to a Mercedes dealership and, you know, just being young and naive, thinking I need something shiny, uh, pulled right in and um, walked into the dealership. I said, hey, somebody's going to make me a deal today because I can't can't drive this car out of here. And I set the keys on the table and we started running the paperwork for it right there. So,
0: uh, yeah, that was the... uh, that was a Mercedes story. Yeah, and you got that from actually showing them, hey, look, I'm the CFO of this company. Yeah, so that that goes to maybe uh, another
1: side of it is the leverage side of it. Yeah. So I I had typed my uh, typed my offer contract and it was obviously approved by him. But uh, walked in the dealership, I said, hey, here's what I'm gonna be making for the next 12 months. You know, coming out of college, I, I didn't have you know much to my name at that time, but I was like, this is this is where I'm going. And the story was powerful enough that they were like, okay. It's good enough for
0: me, and I mean, just basically sold them on on the idea now, you know, turned out well, but yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's such a cool story of something like a, a micro example of what it looks like to build a connection in one area and then leverage that connection for something bigger, right? It's almost like that that show on small TV, like the, it, yeah. the bartering Absolutely. show where sure. people start off with something small and then by the end of it, they bar their way up to a boat or whatever. I had a friend of mine that did that in, uh, in school, he started with um. It's like a POS
1: car and he, you know, sold bikes, he did it over and over and over again, sold cars, you know, built himself up to a Corvette when we were like 17, but Mm -hmm. anyways.
0: Dude, that's awesome. Yeah, and it's, yeah, it's the exact same thing where you're like, well, first of all, you say yes before you actually jump, Mm -hmm. right? You're like, oh, CFO, yeah, I could do that. You weren't like, oh, well, I haven't, you know, I don't have a degree in finance, so I don't know, I better not. You're like, yeah, I can do that. And then you figure it out as you go. And then you take that contract and you go to the car dealership and you say, look, Look at this thing. I'm a CFO. Yes. Can you give me the car? Yes. That actually reminds me of a story that we were touching on uh, earlier where my dad, so he started off with absolutely nothing. And there was one day he went to uh, to this embroidery shop that did custom embroideries on, on polos. Sure. And he saw that the lady kept having to turn people away because they were there wanting it as a Christmas gift. And the turnaround time wasn't quick enough because they would ship them over to Houston. My dad lived in San Antonio at the time. They would ship it over to Houston. Um, and so the turnaround time was too slow for these people who were doing it for christmas and so my dad he'd want it and he's super bold like you i mean it your story reminds me so much of him where i'm like oh man this is epic uh and he went up to the lady and he said i noticed your turnaround time's pretty slow and he had done the math on how much money they were losing from the people walking out and just like the hour that he was sitting there observing this thing and uh and he said i can have it turned around within 24 hours and he didn't know very much about embroidery, but he figured, like, oh, how hard could it be? He didn't have any machines, any money. He had maybe like $50 to his name. This was like 40 years ago. So $100, $50 might have been worth I don't know, like $150 today or something. Sure. And, uh, and he ended up saying, like, who owns this place? And he talked to that guy and basically ran the numbers, made the sale to that guy who was willing to to print all the stuff, right? So he had that contract. And then he ended up spending his money on a one way flight. To oh actually no take it back the the guy um who owned the place lived a flight away so he took a flight out there um got the contract and then asked the guy for a down payment so he could afford a flight back because he had spent all of his money on a one-way flight so he got the down payment it was like 25 percent down or something got that money bought it flew back went to the manufacturer of these machines that did the embroideries and basically said hey i have this letter of intent can i have a machine they said we don't have any in stock and he said what about that one on the showroom floor and they said all right we'll give it to you so they give him the showroom floor one and then he goes to a different embroidery company and he asked around and said who are the top who are the top like eight people who know how to run these machines and he told them and he offered them double what they were making there and then he was running the business out of his house My parents describe it as there were boxes filled to the ceiling inside the house and you could walk or you could only walk around the house with the basically like the empty spaces like there were like trails throughout the house and boxes everywhere else. And these 18 wheelers pulling up in this like ghetto area, you know, and they're just unloading boxes inside the house.
1: What is going on? Yeah.
0: And that's how he got it kicked off was selling one person and then taking that relationship to sell to the other person. Right. right? And that's the leverage that you talk about. Um, Something else that I want to tease on. I really want to dive more into your backstory, but I feel like this is a good segue because you've you've done it so so well of identifying valuable relationships that you can that people who you can work with to actually end up scaling up that we've talked about, right? Sure. So, what did your journey look like in terms of starting out from nothing? You don't know anybody. You know that you want to get into real estate. What were your first few steps moving forward in terms of thinking about the right relationships and actually getting connected with those people?
1: Um, I think this is probably a good point to touch on. Uh, it's really the, the first hospital that I was looking at. So when I was in college and I was running clinicals, I finally met the doctors that owned the heart hospital that I was running clinicals out of. And you know we just got to talking. And I'd always kind of at that time, I knew that I was trying to figure out how to get into real estate. And um, I just didn't. I hadn't picked my strategy per se at that time. I was just studying as much as I could and trying to figure it out. So talked to the doctors that um, ended up owning the hospital, and they were like, well, we own the hospital, and we also own the operating business inside. And I was like, you can do that. And they said, well, yeah, you can You can sure do a lot with real estate. And I said, interesting. So you guys actually, it's it's two separate pieces. And they're like, yeah, it's the shell is one piece. The building is one piece. And then the business, the tenant inside is another piece. And I was like wow, okay, that really kind of going back into class, you know, there on Monday, I was just, I, I couldn't focus at all, I was like these guys bought the building that I'm running clinicals out of and that that's an option, okay so I think that kind of started my you know, we, we, we've talked before i picking your Pokemon, that was kind of it. I was like, alright, I'm going to figure out how to go buy a hospital surely there's got to be, you know, it doesn't have to be a massive regional deal, but I can go, I can go find I know enough about it, uh, I can kind of combine prior knowledge with the real estate I'm trying to get into, and find a
0: nice you know net lease deal and we can talk more on net lease if you want but um, so for, for anybody who doesn't know it let net leases in 15 seconds what does that sound like yeah to? so uh,
1: there's different forms of a net lease there's single net double net triple net lease, absolute net lease. Uh, today we go after absolute net leases it's basically levels of what the tenant is responsible for so an absolute net lease the tenant is responsible for everything including insurance and taxes which is a big deal. So you really do. You are the landlord of the shell um, itself. And so it's kind of more, it's almost like a blend of stock investing. I feel like at that point, because you're really vetting the credit of the company that's Mm. inside rather than, you know, alongside the shell. Yes, but it's going to the lenders, going to the equity guys. They're looking at the credit of that tenant uh, when you get to that level, but um, going down to a single net lease, Basically, you know, maybe I'm responsible for roof structure. I'm responsible for the concrete outside. Uh, I'm responsible for X amount of dollars on the building if something goes wrong, something like that. Um, so different different forms of leases. And that was before I ever got into multifamily, but we'll go into that in a bit. Um, I was in college at the time, met the doctors, uh, started looking at different hospitals around, started calling brokers, and really at that point, I was just reaching out to anybody and everybody I could possibly find. It was around me. I was hitting people up on LinkedIn, strangers, man, just... Anyone I could find talking to teachers, professors. Hey, can you help me meet this person? They're looking at me like, Hey, why are you not focused on your studies? And I'm like, I'm trying to figure out how to buy one of these buildings. And they're like, Well, it's not a terrible idea. Okay, yeah, maybe I can help you out. You know, I even met a couple of the uh, the professors. Um, I met their husbands, or I met their wives, or or whatever. You know, that happened to be maybe they were GCs or superintendents, or they were in some form of construction or whatever. And, um, I mean, I met everybody from garbage men to operators to superintendents to other GCs um, and then I came across a couple of the bigger guys um, I had identified a deal out in Tulsa and I had some friends that you know I was about six months eight months into it and they had they had watched me they wanted me to be successful and they had people that they knew in their connections They're like oh, well, maybe I'll go put them in front of somebody put me in front of a guy named uh, uh I don't know if we can uh, put me in front of a guy named Bill Scotchenler and he was the the president of IBC Bank in Oklahoma City not understanding at the time the level of a president of the bank, like who I was speaking right. to, definitely was like the seventh or eighth meeting that, you know, I would have had. I should have started with a, a lower-level analyst, but um, put me in front of him, and I was looking at a, a $12 million deal, and I walked in with my friend and had my suit on and everything else and walked sat in his office, and he just kind of looked at me, and he was like, you guys are young. What are you guys here for? It's like, I'm trying to buy this building. He goes, this is a $12 million deal. And I said, yeah, it is. He goes, you're going to ask me for $8 million on the first day that, you know, we see each other for, for a loan? I was like, yes, right. And he goes, all right, well, what are you going to do? What are you going to do with it? And I was like, well, I'll figure that out after I buy it. And he's like, all right. And that's like, that, that, that was where the first conversation was like, here's your next five steps. And I was like, oh, okay, got it, got it. And so that led to the next several guys that I talked to, and they were actually operators that were, you know, within the. The market that I was in mm-hmm. um, one guy named Barry Dotson was very helpful to me um, great guy preacher on the weekends He's about looks terrifying if you have ever met the guy He's like 6'6 probably 265 just nothing but muscle bald head I mean massive dude sweetest guy you'll ever meet but uh he kind of took me under his wing and show me you know the ropes hey here's what I've done here's the guys I have worked with and he actually worked with a couple of the larger developers in Oklahoma City at the time that had built multifamily. And so, kind of parallel to that, um, you know, that was kind of the first brush in with multifamily, but I had still had my eyes on hospitals. Reaching out, reaching out, reaching out. Finally found a broker um, out in Oklahoma City. Had a deal. It was a select specialty. Didn't even know who they were at the time. Um, large operator, 100 locations throughout the, the U.S. Turns out, uh, and it's more specific than that, it's 94 locations in the U.S., but... Um, out of their ninety four locations, the Oklahoma City location is their number one performer in the country. I was like, huh i' knew enough about cap rates and purchase price and things like that at the time. went and made an offer on this thing, and uh, the owner happened to be a friend 's family friend, and I had talked to this guy for months about hey i 'm really trying to figure out how to go buy a building and so on and so forth and so like they just the circle got smaller. It was like when you start reaching out. I think to all those people, the circle of players gets very, very tiny. And, like, the people who are actually moving, you know, chess pieces on the board, it gets very small. And so words move quicker, pieces move faster. And honestly, it was just a matter of, you know, you talk about strategy. It's I kissed, like, 10,000 frogs and then finally hit one person that was like, hey, I'm going to help you with your next five, ten steps. Here's who you need to go talk to and this is exactly what you need to do. It's like, oh, okay, follow those, and it leads to the next 510, to the next 510. Finally, eventually, to the operators that are going to help you out and go get that first deal done.
0: Yeah, that's something that came up uh, with the interview with Ryan was one of my favorite quotes, don't strike while the iron is hot, make the iron hot from striking. Oof. I don't remember who said that. Okay. We might have to throw that in the show notes later, so I'm quoting it properly. But yeah, so effectively, it's, don't wait for the right timing, right? Don't say like, oh, well, if only I knew this person or if only I knew that person. Or, oh, well, Aubrey, yeah, of course he did it because he, he met the right people. And it's like, no, you met the right people because you were striking the iron. You were reaching out to everybody you knew. And it's a numbers game, right? Like you nope. kiss enough frogs, you're going to find the prince. It takes time. And it takes time, right? And another one of my favorite quotes from Naval is be patient with results but impatient with action Hmm. so you're impatient with action but still patient with the results To say yeah it takes time yeah you have to reach out to a bunch of people you have to get a bunch of no's you have to be bold enough to walk into a place and say hey i'm gonna buy this place and the guy says you two look young (laughs) what are you doing here you know and just the president of ibc by the way yeah Yeah, who's just going
1: how the hell did y'all get this meeting
0: (laughs) totally (laughs) and and i think the people at the top got there because oftentimes because of their boldness walking into a room and when they see somebody else who is young bold walking into a room not that you have to be young but I do think that boldness gets you a long way of saying like no I'm gonna risk looking foolish here and then the worst thing that can happen is you end up exactly where you were had you not walked in there the only thing is you missed out on an opportunity to, prevent, to potentially like escalate where you are in life and what you're trying to go for
1: and I think a lot of it too was you know, something to be take a note on was presentable and just being put together. Like I may not have known the asset management side of it for the next five years, but I came in respectful manners. I mean, simple stuff, man, you know, like childhood stuff, manners put together. Well, shaved suit, like go in there. Hey, this is what I'm trying to do. Be very clear, very concise. No BS, you know, because these guys have dealt with this for 20, 30 years. They, they know BS when they're presented with it. Mm -hmm. So Hey, this is what I'm trying to do. Help me get there or tell me who or this meeting is, you know, adjourned yeah. at this point.
0: Look like somebody they want to give their money to. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah.
1: Or somebody they can build into somebody that they're going to want to, right?
0: So Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so then moving forward from there, so you built some momentum. Hmm. Share a bit more about what the the acquisition process looked like for that first hospital.
1: I'd say as far as even the the massive action went I went as far as I took a job at a brokerage. I went to Marcus and Millichap straight out of college, nowhere near my degree field. No, I mean, just, and it was part of reaching out into people in the, uh, in the market. And I was like, what do I need to do? And they're like, do you know how to underwrite deals? And I was like, what do you mean? And they're like, oh, God, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, all right, well, explain it to me. And, you know, they, they would share with me their different underwriting models or, or whatnot. But I said, you need to figure out how to structure deals. So that when you go and talk to whoever it is you're going to talk to, and, you know, three main people, there's operators, there's lenders, and there's equity partners, and they're all going to know how to structure deals and how they play together with each other. And he's like, you've got to figure that out. Otherwise, you're going to lose someone's money, you're going to lose your money, or you're going to get sued. And I was like, okay, that's fair. Where do I go? And they're like, I would start at a big brokerage house, right, kind of back to picking your Pokemon. And they're like, what do you want to do? Do you want to be on the debt side? Do you want to be on the equity side? Do you want to be on the operator side? I was like, well, I think the operators I think the best operators turn into the best investors, right? Because mm. they know kind of the whole process of, of putting everything. But anyways.
0: So uh, so uh, I want to point something out. Was it more like you wanted to be the investor and you thought like, okay, what's the best stepping stone to actually become that best investor, which is Absolutely. via the operator?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I've always been the one that I, I eventually want to be the check writer, right? I want to be the bridge lender. I right. want to be we can go into some details on that later but um in order to get there especially if you don't have you know a massive treasure chest sitting behind you in the beginning you got to go build it yourself and really the only route to do that is either brokerage of some form or be the operator i thought brokerage was definitely the best way to i picked Mark and millichap they're a great shop they're huge they're global um the training was immaculate um i got you know a year of in-depth Understanding on this is how you underwrite deals. It's how they're put together. Here's the players in the market. Uh, here's the lenders. Here's the equity partners they do deals with. Um, here's the property management companies they work with. And so, like, all of those pieces, right, as soon as you get, here's a property management company they work with. All right, I'm going to their website. I'm calling the guys that run the shop. I'm going in. Hey, what have you done for the last 15 years? How do you do it? Like, and that took, you know, that's back to the time. Meeting all the players, meeting all their pieces, learning how everything gets put together, and then being able to uh, being able to underwrite um, being able to sit there and understand and you know financial modeling and uh, things like that when I didn't have a degree in it in the first place was definitely a uh, took some action there just to, to practice and learn kind of learn your assumptions learn your, your pieces but um, that really led me into the into the acquisition side it was about about ten months in um, and there was another guy there uh, at Marcus with me I trained with him his name is Jackson Russell uh, one of my partners today and uh, I said hey we got to figure out how to buy one of these. And at the same time, I was like, hey, I've been looking at this hospital. I'm going to go put an offer on this thing. And he said, yeah, let do it. Cause he was in office sales. And he was doing industrial sales and tenant leasing. And you know, I was doing multifamily underwriting at the time. And uh, I was like, all right, let's well, let's let's figure out how to go put this together. He said, okay. So I put the offer on it. Go out. It's a 70,000-square-foot building that we go and tour. And I mean, I'm touring with the operations manager and the facilities manager. And they're looking at us like, the hell are these guys <laughs> like they're not going to be able to buy this deal they're not going to close this um and at the time i mean we we had we had raised like a million bucks they're just family and friends because stepping back a bit when you go to go take down one of these bigger deals you have to write a check up front now it can be refundable but they're going to expect some earnest money and depending on the size of the deal it's typically around one percent so 100 million dollar deal they're going to want a million bucks It's a little more than that. Today, I mean, I've seen anywhere from, and we did a $50 million deal, we did a $70 million deal. Those were about $750,000, $900,000 earnest checks that you got to go put up in the first place. We didn't have that in our pocket. I couldn't just go write them a check and be like, hey, if you need to cash this, the bank will clear it, you know? So uh, we had to go raise that money. And that created a it's an interesting deal structure that we put together up front to to do that.
0: So then really quickly, that process is... You have the capital for the earnest money. So basically like you mm. want to buy a hundred million dollar deal and then you say, Okay, one percent down in this situ- in in this example, it's a million dollars and that's basically just table stakes to say, Hey, I'm legit. Let's go ahead and proceed to to see if we can actually close on this thing. It is the cost of buying yourself the due
1: diligence period. Cool. Until it until the money goes hard. And that was like the money goes hard it's not our money it's like you got to know you're buying that deal yeah yeah debt has got to be lined out you, you got to have everything squared away and typically that's i've seen it anywhere from 10 days 15 days 30 days i mean if it's land sometimes it's like 90 days 100 days but somewhere in there you have mm-hmm. x amount of days to, to do your due diligence and it costs you to, to go put that up but
0: yeah okay so you raise this amount from family friends and then you find the hospital and you know that that's what you want to go for
1: yes next step Mortgage brokers, totally different side of the game, right? There's real estate brokers and then there's mortgage brokers. Mortgage brokers are guys that are going and their job is to call every bank or lender, life LifeCo, um, what have you that is around. that somebody that does uh, the financing you're looking for. And so, I mean, they might, you know, a bigger deal, 50, 60, 100 million dollar deal. You know, you probably have 30 different bids depending um, from lenders from. All around the country something smaller than me in the hospital I think we had like five guys that came in Uh, three of them were local two of them were in Texas Um, that partially led me to Texas at that point Um, we'd reached out for some help from one of the investors and he was like hey I know a guy in Dallas Um, let me introduce you to him I think he can probably help you out on the debt side said okay so went and met him introduced us to the mortgage brokers they were out of Texas um, and the mortgage brokers actually introduced us into our first co-general partners. So the guys that helped us close the deal, raise the cash, raise the equity bit, manage the deal after it's closed, so forth. The
0: bigger operators that we could go and close the deal with.
1: Um, That was kind of the next next big
0: step. Okay, so that's the next big step. And then previously you mentioned you were, so was it once you get past that option period that you started reaching out to everybody to find the, the rest of the cash? Oh, no, I mean, I'd i say we were reaching out for the rest of the cash <laughs> even before I right even knew it was the hospital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely.
1: It's you're in an equity race period. It's like, okay, I know that I'm going to need to go lock up one deal, call 500 grand, 750 grand to lock up something larger. And the hospital was about 20 million bucks. I think it was like 18, 225 was the purchase. And then all in, it was like 21 million. Um, so I knew I was going to need like five, six, seven million bucks, somewhere in there, depending on the, the loan to value. So I was out asking for that. Way in advance. And, I mean, you really have to be – people get nervous, I think, asking for cash. You know, because that's what it is, right? When you raise an equity. But what they don't realize is there are hundreds of billions of dollars literally just sitting in pockets right now that are begging to be spent. Warren Buffett's got, what, 90-something billion dollars sitting in cash because he can't find anything better to spend it on because there's nothing Hmm. returning the amount that the U.S. dollar is yielding right now, right? Um, but if you can present that to somebody and structure a unique deal, they're not upset that you're asking for it. They're almost glad. It's like, okay, can you get this done? If you can, thank God I'm trying to allocate X dollars by the end of the year. Um, which I thought was, that was kind of an interesting thing to learn.
0: But yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll never forget Brandon Turner with bigger pockets has a, had a quote one time where he said, the people who are pulling the right deals together are the hot girl at the bar. Yes. Like, don't be worried about being bashful of asking people for money. Just because you highly value your money because you haven't really made it yet doesn't mean that other people look at money the same way. Absolutely. And if you invest your time in educating yourself, like you were an obsessive learner with all this stuff, right? Yep. If you focus on your craft and really nailing down being able to find a good deal, when you find that good deal, the money will just come in, right? Right. And it's not that easy, right? It's much easier said than done because you were sure. striking the iron long
1: tremendously
0: yeah. for a long time yeah. to get that iron hot. Can you share a bit more what what it looked like to to reach out and raise that money? What avenues did you did you pursue? What did what areas did you find you you gained more traction in? It took a year and a half to close that hospital. Something that should have done should have been done
1: in you know ninety days was a year and a half. Now, granted, <clears throat> I will say this. March of 2020 is when we put that under contract. So the world kind of blew up with COVID right then at the same time, and everybody went inside, Mm. right? Which was just, especially all of the, not to, a lot of the wealth is held with the older generation. Mm -hmm. So the older generation all of a sudden just went inside and in their houses and stopped going out, stopped going to the office, stopped taking meetings for, you know. It was a 90-day period of, hey, we're just going to rebalance the portfolios and make sure that, more are squared weather, whatever it is and then they even started looking at that point like it was the pause button just got hit well, we're under contract earnest money's in due diligence the clock has started so it was that was its own um difficulty but as far as the, the equity raise it was um i'd say it started with start with the mortgage brokers um yet you got to put the debt together first i think and at least in in my mind so right, um, what does
0: that look like putting the debt together
1: uh, a ton of paperwork. I mean, it's the last deal we closed. There was probably 1,500 pages of loan documents that I went through and 47 separate attachments, you know, and, uh, and that was just the debt piece. And the debt piece very much correlates to the equity piece, right? So it's while it's kind of simultaneous, you at least have to know because when you're going and talking to the equity, they're going to go, okay, what does the debt look like? When you go talk to the debt, they're going to look at you and go, okay, well, what do the equity terms look like? So it's very much... Bit kind of together, yeah, yeah. but I, I very much think like you need, you need a strong debt platform, some a lender that is saying, hey, I'm going to close 65, 70 percent of this because you can then use that to go shape the equity terms and the cash flows that they need. Um, as far as what it looks like, it was <laughs> working with those brokers and then finally working with the banks and the other partners. Um, you know, we got to meet those other couple of co-gps that you know, they've done this for 20, 30 years. Um, I'd say that's If you're looking at doing a larger deal on one of the first swings, the bank and the equity guys both are going to look at your track record and they're going to expect you to – it doesn't have to be crazy, but like they're either going to expect you to have somebody on board with you that has done this before and is going to ensure that the deal goes as planned um, or you've done yourself 20 or 30 of these deals. They don't want to see a first deal that terrifies people. Um, So maybe that was even – before putting the debt together, you gotta go secure the partner that's gonna help you sign on it, right? Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: And it sounds like that's the the route that you went, right? Was securing that correct. partner. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Um, so what did it look like to convince a partner that you were worth diving into with this? Um, about
1: three and a half months of driving back and forth to Dallas and meeting with these guys and calls with them and calls with the lender and uh you know, them running due diligence on us. I mean we ran before even meeting them, just kind of back to that personal due diligence, I mean, we had very in-depth executive profiles run on us, background checks, I mean, bank statements, financials, anything you could possibly imagine. It's like, here's me, here's my family, here's where I was in kindergarten. Like, I mean, they go back that far. Wow. And um, they they want to know who you are, is there any dirty laundry we need to know about, are you going to get me sued or anything like mm-hmm. that. And so, I mean, you got to say, hey, I'm a clean whistle, I'm put together, I've got an idea, I want to go big, um, I understand what it takes, and if it requires me to be on the phone at four in the morning, I will be there, and I'll handle that. And, I mean, it was really just, you know, at that point you're kind of, the deal sells itself, quote-unquote, but it's you. It's, are you going to be, are you going to answer the phone? Are you going to put this together? What are the things that you've put together so far look like? You know, is this, are you credible? Are you somebody I want to spend time on?
0: And were those relationships primarily built from working at that brokerage, or was that from... Reaching out to people and 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 trying to I guess gain those connections via cold contact every bit was cold contact Wow, the brokerage
1: really taught me it I would say if I was in Dallas at the brokerage, I think it would have been a different story but mm-hmm. the Oklahoma brokerage is a much different gotcha Oklahoma brokers are a lot smaller breed out there if you will there's not it's just not a lot of deal volume right I mean the growth in Oklahoma' is four to six percent on good years the growth in Dallas has been like 20 percent 22 percent 24 percent you know there's 18 people moving here an hour yeah so it's like there's a lot more people to talk to in Texas than there is in Oklahoma yeah Uh, yeah. and I would say the people in Oklahoma too that we even met not a lot of people like brokers it's uh if you're a liked broker it's because you you get deals done you're real and you um you've been trusted for a long time with these guys but um a lot of them salesy and you know it's it's just part of the game but uh, no, I'd say a lot of that came from just the outreach. You go and meet, you know, 100 guys that are dead ends, and then the 101st guy leads you to the next five. They go and get the first deal done kind of thing. Um,
0: so what does getting those reps in looking look like in terms of, like, where do you actually go to cold call people? Is it messaging on platforms like LinkedIn? Is it calling up brokerage, brokerages and seeing who you can get a hold of? What what is that actionably look like.
1: Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube comments, um, cold calling the newspaper, knowing who people are in your, I mean, I went and knocked on office doors. Um, There was a, a president of a larger brokerage that I knew was also a developer in Oklahoma, and I knew exactly who he worked with and who his partners were, and I mean, I went and knocked on their doors. And... Very interesting, too. You walk in those doors, and you get through the front door, but you're met very quickly by people at that door. Who are you here to see? Why are you here? Well, you know, so on, so on, so forth. It's like, ah, I'd like to see Mr. So-and-so. And And they're like, do you have an appointment? "Uh, No, okay, please, please exit the building. It's like, okay, all right, I'll be back.
0: Not even schedule a time. It's just like leave. No, (laughs) no.
1: Very very private individuals that uh, they're about their business. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, I mean, stuff like that, yeah. And it's, (sighs) I think it's, what is that saying? It's back to the massive action, but uh, luck is where opportunity meets preparedness or something. Yeah. Okay. So, like three weeks ago, I was in a FedEx at 9 a.m., I was getting my passport photos taken. I just walked in the door, sitting there waiting about nine o'clock. And so, guy next to me, and he was waiting for something too. And doors open, walk in. Hey, do you guys do passport photos? Yeah, 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 okay. I said, all right. And they said, yeah, step over here. Guy over in the corner, he's like, "Where are you going?" Guys chatting, it's like, "I'm going here and here. I'm trying to get over to you know Austria, and I want to see parts of Denmark." And he's like, "Oh, that's that's pretty exotic. What do you do?" I was like, "Oh, i do real estate acquisitions, and I bought my first few deals, and so on." And he's like, "What do you do?" He's like, "Oh, do you know so and so?" I was like, "Uh, yeah, they're one of the largest developers in in Texas." And he was like, "Yeah, we bring all the equity down." And I was like, "Oh." that's interesting. Could we have lunch, please? And he was like, yeah, absolutely. Let's, let's go grab lunch. And we just got talking. And then, sure enough, went and had lunch with him and two of his other partners like two weeks ago and they've already shown me. I mean, I looked at a deal in New Braunfels with them. That was probably a $65 million deal. And they're looking at us bringing, they're looking now at us bringing 15 million bucks into, into that project to go and partner with them on. But stuff like that. I mean, it was just, people say, oh, he's in the right place at the right time. And I think it's just a matter of I'm up every day, hauling ass all the time all over the state of Texas, and eventually, it's just a numbers game. You're going to run into somebody that kind of back to the, the circle is smaller and smaller and smaller, right? Yeah. And they, don't, they don't care where you came from. They don't care. There's certain cliques in, in Dallas, I'd say, that exist, but um, outside of that, they want to know that who are you, what are you doing, here's what I'm doing, and if you can bring value to me, do it professionally, and don't bother me and get it done, like, they'll go do deals with you.
0: Yeah. So. So so you've mentioned a handful of times a concept that I absolutely love of picking your Pokemon. Mm. Can you elaborate a bit more on what that means? I think, so I've
1: got some friends that they keep trying to come to me. They're like, oh, I want to do this. And then the next week, it's I want to do this. And then the next week, I want to do this. I want to do this. I think I started with that. And I was, you know, back to like when I was in college, I was reading all the different books. Well, I finally picked real estate. It's like, you know, in the old... Pokemon game, when you start the game, you either pick the green one, the blue one, the red one. And that shapes the whole game, right? That's where you start. That's your, that's your guy that you go build. Well, it's very much the same thing. I picked real estate. And then from real estate, you have, all right, do I want to be the operator? Do I want to be on the debt side? Do I want to be on the equity side? Because you can start anywhere. It's, I think it really just goes to personal preference. I think it's position in life um, and then just what you're passionate about. I like the operator side for a multitude of reasons but I also like the control that it gives me on any kind of the lending or the equity side you have no control because it's ultimately in the operators hands um, on if they're gonna go and get the job done and as the operator I know that I will stay up till 5 in the morning if it means you know fixing a minute piece of a deal that makes the investor return better Um, but anyways back to so I picked the operator side and then from the operator side you kind of pick again, right? It's okay. Well, do I want to do net lease deals? Do I want to do multifamily deals? Do I want to buy industrial deals? Um, do I want to do ground up? Do I want to do rehabs? Do what level of, you know, am I going core plus? Am I going um, so on and so forth? And you just, you kind of pick deeper and deeper until you really shape your scope. You shape your, your strategy of what you're going after. And that, I found that when I picked one direction, and I just started pounding the pavement every day to go get that first deal done, I got the first deal done. And then it was that first deal led to the next couple, which led to the next couple, which are now leading into, I'm looking at, you know, a pipeline of 20 in front of me that are all, these are not searching for deals. These are like, now I've developed sponsor relationships, right? Other sponsors that are doing deals that need help in various ways. Maybe they need equity raised, or maybe they're looking for, you know, someone to put the debt together for them, or maybe they need, you know, uh, acquisition director to go in and, shape deals before that um they'll cut you equity ownership cut your fees i mean you can make money you can make your career out of that but kind of for me personally it's i want to see it all so it's as much as i can possibly do in as many different fields of real estate right of my pokemon that's what i want to do and now it'll branch after that but
0: so you mentioned so we, we've touched on this a handful of times striking the iron to make it hot and how the the fruit of your labor did take a a while to be realized what gave you the confidence that if you were persistent in this game of real estate that it would actually generate the results you needed as opposed to what it sounds like a handful of your friends have which is that shiny object syndrome right where they start working on something and then they jump to something else trying to basically they they think that changing up your strategy and and those micro pivots you can turn it this way a little bit um, those micro pivots might give them better a better chance, but you saw that the pivots were actually going to take you off course. And you needed to stay straight. What were you looking at that helped you understand? Okay, if I stick with this, then I'm I'm gonna make it. Because a quick caveat is, you know, like they say, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results. Mm-hmm. But realistically, that is the thing you need to do sometimes, right? Is you need to do the same thing because there are certain things in life that it's getting your reps in and continuing to grind with the same thing that over a period of time will generate the results that you're looking for. So how do you distinguish between those two things? How do you distinguish, okay, this is an instance where I look insane because I'm doing the same thing and the results aren't showing up, right? I'm cold calling people. I'm trying to raise money. It's hard to get people to give me money because I'm new and all this stuff and I don't actually have the track record yet and all that versus, okay, maybe I should not be insane and I should pivot somewhere else.
1: I think a lot of different places. I think one good place was education, for one. Listening to the guys that had started in the exact same spots. I mean, Cardone was a a great spot. I mean, a lot of people have a lot of different views of that guy. But, I mean, Uncle G was one of my favorites for a long time. I mean, he just screamed, go out there and go for it, you know. I mean, I think that was kind of his whole underlying message. Um, And seeing what he was able to build, I think he started what, like – he didn't really start making money until he was in like his 50s right so it's kind of one thing that i saw was okay at my age starting this out you know, I was 25 or i was i was like twenty, twenty-three, twenty-four 23 24 when i really started looking at it and it's like i can fail every single year for almost a decade and i'll barely be over 30 right so that was kind of a big piece it was really just um i knew that in the back of my head and then that was reinforced by a couple of my first mentors there was a. Uh, one guy in particular, he was just baddie as all hell to be honest. But you know, he looked me in the face one night. We were having dinner and drinks with a couple of his partners and he was like, Aubrey, I want you to be absolutely reckless. I just want you to go and just be reckless as hell. Just go get into anything and everything you possibly can. Skin your knees, fall down, bust your teeth in, like, don't get sued. Don't <laughs> don't don't catastrophically, you know, screw yeah. up. But like, just go. I was like, so I did that. I started really, and I, I did, I skinned my knees enough to kind of, it gave me that stability, right? Of, all right, I know what I can and can't do. kind of learned the, mm-hmm. learn the boundaries. Uh, you know, another mentor was um, passed on a speak in absolutes, you know, because I, I noticed that uh, that was, I've got that written on my wall. It's like, just to remember every day, speak in absolutes because nobody wants, maybe this is going to happen. You only speak in, hey, I have done this today. This got done you know you don't go oh I'll get it done next week or I'll go do this in three days or you should have this 30 days from now it's you only talk to those guys when you know it's hey I've got this done I finished it yesterday it's so on but um back to what you were saying uh a couple of the mentors like I said that I had personal to me um started in similar places and I saw where they were at I saw how long it took and you know it took them 10 12 15 years some of them and I saw how far it already kind of come in just a year and a half two years and so I was comfortable with that timeline I very much I married the time it was going to take me to do this I knew that I signed up for a 20 30 year game and I was fine with that and I knew that I might fail in there but as long as you know you avoided catastrophic failures you listen to people around you that frankly just knew more than you or had done it before that Probably gonna work out in the end. I mean it was just there's enough literature out there and people talking about it to say, okay, if I do X for long enough, then your result will be Y. Even if you do poorly and you start here, here's where you're you know, here's where you're end goal, but here's kind of the next milestone you need to be hitting. That was kinda of how I kept my sanity, I guess.
0: Yeah. There are so many directions we could go from there. Yeah. so many things I want to tease out. It's always so it hurts my soul to have to only pick yeah, one yeah, yeah. I'm hoping that uh, well maybe you have time to get to the others. I wanna revisit the idea of speaking in absolute mm-hmm. absolutes. Because I think that's incredibly powerful, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you're talking about what you're going to do too frequently, then you mm-hmm. become that going to do person yep. who everybody every time you tell them you're gonna do something, they just accept that you're just, you know, blowing hot air. Yep. Whatever it is. So can you elaborate more more discreetly? What is speaking in absolutes? How do you view it, and how do you actually apply it?
1: I think a lot of it really relates to, to the uh, the money raise side of it. Mm. The, the equity raise and the debt side of it, they have a lot of questions. The bank has a ton of questions. The equity partners have a ton of questions. We closed a, I closed those apartments in Dallas I was telling you about. That was a $22,889,000 check that they wrote us. I went through like six months of questions until I got that, you know, that that check written so we go close that and they're out of israel so they're eight hours ahead which means i was answering questions at two or three in the morning and it was you know the afternoon for them or whatever it was over there but um when they're asking hey i think the mind has a tendency to just when it gets nervous it defaults to a quick answer especially when they're asking something that you may not truly know. It's like I got – I remember one because it was uh, was for that that equity partner. They asked me something about the window joints. And they're like, hey, does it have a flashing here, here, and here? And is it caulked with this, this, and this? And I was like, yes, yes, it is. That's fine. And it just kind of came out. I I wasn't thinking about it. It was not. okay. (laughs) That was about $102,000 that I had to go and then contract out to go and fix that. And then I had to go and tell them, hey – This was actually this, this, and this. Because at the end of the day, it's all coming back to the numbers. Like every single thing that occurs in a deal will be flushed out on the settlement statement, period. So I think that is probably one of the most important things that I've learned alongside speaking absolutes is know your numbers. Got that from another one of my current mentors and partners um, who just loves to grill the ever-loving shit out of me about the settlement (laughs) statement. I mean, we'll go rounds and rounds and rounds. The guy's in his 50s, 60s. And we're sitting there at 9.30 at night going through numbers on, a, on an Excel sheet. And he's like, you have to know this. <laughs> and uh, I get it. It's because it, it all comes out when you don't speak to. in that absolute of, you know, if you blow a little smoke, whether or not, h- however big or small it is, like it will be flushed out. Um, and it damages credibility, damages the relationship. Um, at the end of the day, that was something extremely minor. But I think that's – give you an idea of the – scale that, you know, these people deal with, you know, hundred grand was something minor to them as, as far as a contracting issue, but um those kinds of things. And just doing as you doing as you say you're going to do it's mm. very important. You know, a lot especially to the, the older guys. I mean they've they've been through it and they've done it for thirty years, kinda of back to the no no bullshit. They'll look you straight in the face and it's like, Hey, are you going to do XYZ? Yes, I'm going to do XYZ on this date. If you don't do it on that date They remember, they absolutely remember, even if you think, oh, they they probably forgot, it's fine, it can be pushed to Monday, your credibility just knocks from 100 to 99, you know, and it's, that builds up over time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's something that I can, I can deeply relate to. I very much try to live by the motto of, don't tell people what you're going to do, show them what you've done. Yep. Right. Like even this podcast, I haven't told very many people that I'm going to do it. Yeah. The only people I've shared with are people if I'm like actually working to pull it together. Yeah. And then I'll tell people like, oh, yeah, I'm, you know, driving up to Dallas, this DFW this weekend because we're going to shoot the first episode of this podcast. I'm putting together. and be like, Oh, wow. Yeah. Because you know, it's like I'm this is actually a thing that is happening and in place. Yep. And then you become branded as that person who's actually doing things as opposed to that person who quote unquote, is on their way to do something that may or may not end up happening. Sure. I think uh, personal relationships,
1: too, very much important in speaking in absolutes. I mean, down to, you know, um, my family and loved ones around me, Mandy. I mean, it's when you're, I think it's easy when you're talking to them because it's almost like a, they're not business partners. They're not. They're not equity partners. You know, they're not strangers. They're people you love and want to support you, and so it's easy to go and tell them, "Hey, I'm doing this deal. I'm doing so on and so forth." I think you know we'll be able to do this, this, and this, and, and so forth. And then when a lot of deals, a lot of deals blow up. A lot of deals don't go through. I mean, I had to look at, to go get that first deal done. I mean, I looked at a whole lot more than just that. I probably looked at you know, hundred plus deals just to do the first. And I, over the last you know five or six that I've done, I've probably looked at. I don't know, a 1,000, maybe 2,000 deals to, to get those couple done. And some of those were even under contract that fell out, blew out, didn't work out, I mean, on both the and buy side. And so when that happens and you have, you get, I think it's more the excitement with the loved ones. It's like, hey, I've got this deal under contract, right? They're like, oh, shit. They get all pumped up. Whatever happens, the, the rate blows out. Uh, the Fed hikes and, you know, it, the loan blows up the deal or, or whatever. And you have to go and you're like, hey, lost that deal. That's a big blow. To family and personal relationships I've noticed Mm. so it's easier to um, just kind of keep a keep a level head and keep a level expectations controlling expectations Mm. very important especially with family relationships I get asked a lot of questions from them and friends and it's like yeah no, we're things are going well they're not going great they're not going bad it's going well it's moving along as it should, and they're like, what does that mean? I'm like, it's moving along as it should. I'll let you know when the deal's done. Yeah. <laughs> so until yeah. everything's closed, yeah. yeah. It's open ended. Yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of one just to touch on that, just wire transfers, right? It's uh a lot of people speaking in absolute, a lot of people talk, but I've definitely learned that it's real when when the money transfers. When you get the Fed reference number of the money going to the other account, that's when that's when it's real. It's crazy. Signatures yeah. and
0: wire transfers. And like you touched on before, people log when other people can actually close and do what they say they're going to do or actually have done something, you know, definitively. Yeah. Right. Like even if people don't remember every instance, you build a brand as you go through life and you build a reputation Mm -hmm. that people subconsciously and emotionally store as you being that type of person. Even if they don't remember the events that led to them feeling that about you. You still develop that brand as you go through life, so make sure that everything that is associated with your brand is something that makes people want to pull you to the top.
1: Yeah Yeah, I mean, and, um, I think be careful who you burn out. I, mm. burned, I burned out a mentor, um, sweet guy, honestly, just wanted nothing but the best for us, but he was he's probably coming up on 80. and I think that I think he thought we were a little further along in the beginning than we were. And so the cost of that education, of him telling us and kind of him hopping back, you know, he's basically retired at that point. But him having to come back into the game at the level that he did to make sure that the things we were doing went smoothly, I think it was a little more than he intended to bite off. And it, it hurt the relationship at the end of it, you know. It was, um, I think, kind of back to that control expectations, be very open, speak in absolutes, and be very clear on, where you're at what you know what you're trying to do and what you have around you to go go get it done because
0: it's stressful yeah yeah no 100 percent